Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Thank you so much for joining me on the Preacher Boys podcast. JT, can you just introduce yourself to our listeners and let them know a little bit about you? Yeah, I'm JT Langhorn, and I grew up IFB actually with a great loving family. And they were super supportive of me and everything that I did. The hard part was in the IFB culture, I don't think people were aware at the time, maybe still aren't, and it seems like they still aren't, of how difficult it can be for kids to be you know, taught some of these things that just put a lot of fear and spiritual trauma and puts them into that life. And so I was a fly on the wall for years at Highland Park Baptist Church, which is in Chattanooga and you know, Tennessee Temple High School, grew up there, university. And the stuff that I saw, it was really tough as I grew up to, to stay not jaded about a lot of the things that I saw and it it was tough to deal with. So when you say you saw a lot, I'm not overly familiar with Tennessee Temple and I know JC over at Recovering Fundamentalist, I know he, I think he's from Tennessee Temple, but I don't really know that world. So I don't know that I can take guesses about what it's like or, but what was the experience there? What did you notice was harmful or toxic about that environment? We had chick tracks in our display cases and we got the sword of the Lord. So it's very similar to, I mean, they're straight IFB. Right. The same guys come in to, we host Bible conferences because our church was so big. I mean, thousands of members. We had all the, you know, the big hitters coming in and, you know, it was, we had like in Trinity, I don't like everybody. I don't know, Bob Gray Sr. or Bob Gray, old Bob Gray. I don't know if you are aware of old Bob Gray from yeah. Jacksonville, Florida. I'm sure you are. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's a big story out of the IFB oh, abuse scandal. Yeah. That was like one of those big ones too, where it's like, what? Yeah. This went on for how many years? And you know, I'm coming up through this. I'm not thinking anything about it, except for the fact that 
I'm scared to death of hell, like mm. scared of it. And I know that there's probably people out there saying, yes, you should be scared of hell. But there's a difference between being scared of hell and having it crammed down your throat and weaponized when you're six, yeah. when you're eight, when you're 12. And it was just like all the time we're getting a church camp. There's, there was a, one story and I actually wrote about it. This guy's got a ventriloquist dummy and he's telling all the kids and telling jokes and it was a nightly thing. And then he throws the dummy into the fire and starts voice acting. We had, as little kids, people had developed a relationship with this dummy over the course of a week. And now the dummy's burning in hell and he's voice acting it all out. Like kids, I'm burning, somebody help me. Hmm. And, and that's, that actually made like the local news. Uh, really? Every kid got saved. You know, but it was those kind of tactics. Yeah. If you're not 100% sure that you're saved, you're 99% sure, then you're 100% lost kind of thing. So that leads to people getting saved. I guess in the novel, I said the uh, character got saved 78 times. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's pretty accurate. I think I think anybody who's grown up in the IFB has probably gotten saved quite a few times. Yeah, yeah and I agree. There's a difference between talking about hell or talking about whatever you want to fill in the blank with the rapture. Like for, for me, it was the rapture. It was hell for a while, but rapture was the thing where I was like terrified of what, what if I'm not sure? What if I didn't say the right thing? What if I accidentally did something wrong where I'm going to be left here? Yeah. And yeah, I, I agree. There is a way to, to talk about it. There's a way to discuss it without being overly like traumatizing. And for a lot of, even in, I said big church, but in adult services, it was a situation where hell was the leverage to get you to make the decision as opposed to who God is yeah. being the reason you make the decision. And I think that's a very different and harmful way to share a gospel message is to start with the fear and not with the, the hope. I would say most every time I got saved was because of hell. Yeah. Like every time uh, it was really, and I don't even, I don't even blame them for that. And I don't, I think everybody really, I genuinely believe that everybody was and is doing the best they can with what they know. I think they're trying. Now you have your exceptions, like sociopathic, power hungry people. My my grandfather's IFP pastor is one of the best people I know. He was, he was an amazing guy and he's probably pretty progressive as far as IFP pastors would go. But the language, especially when it comes to kids who have a, a different wiring. And I believe that some people are just prone to ask more questions and things aren't going to make as much sense. The language that's used turns into a weapon and it gets really difficult. I mean, everybody has the judgment houses that are haunted houses and all that kind of stuff. I'm at Temple. We have that every year. I walk through it. I say it every single year. I'm just terrified. Mm -hmm. Jimmy DeYoung. I don't know if you remember Jimmy DeYoung. I don't know if he's still doing his thing. Jimmy DeYoung. He's the guy that does the, he's not IFB, is he? I think so. He's a prophecy guy. And there may be two Jimmy DeYoungs. He was all about, he would come in and like do these stories on Revelation, like the whole time. And, and it was just like rapture. And I'm sitting in here and I'm like 11 years old or 12 years old. And I'm like, so they're going to float in the sky. So I'm going to wake up one morning and everyone might be gone. Mm-hmm. So then that triggers the whole, and I, I never realized like what, why was I so angry later and yeah. like un- unpacking all this? And I think a lot of it just came back to the language and the way that the beliefs were weaponized. So 
what was your um you said your parents were obviously really really good family and i share that story like i my direct immediate family was great and i don't have any complaints or anything there but obviously you mentioned being around some other like kind of toxic people or teachings that were if not the content like the actual way it was presented was very harsh but as far as abuse i know you mentioned abuse a lot in the book is that something you saw firsthand? Did you see people who were experiencing that kind of stuff? Did, did you know people who were affected by abuse in the IFB? Or was that something you recognized later once you, no, once you got was, out? It was something that we all mm. knew was there and was happening. And there was, there's a lot of stories. And some of those stories aren't my stories. So they, sure. we were like flies on the wall. Mm. I had a very close encounter, I will say, that I don't know if one of my friends escaped. So I'm just going to leave this vague. So it doesn't like, I don't know if one of my friends escaped this encounter, but it came out years and years and years later, uh, actually about five years ago or so that this guy had been, and he wasn't IFB, but he was around yeah. campus and stuff that he had molested a lot of kids. And this came out after his death that people started coming forward about it. And then I got to thinking how close I was to that situation, but it was almost every two or three years, there'd be a new story and a new person disappear. Uh, that was a common kind of thing. And then you just see the way things were talked about, preached about. Like one of the worst things I ever think I witnessed was a girl got pregnant and she had to go up in front of the church. Everybody's probably sat, most people who have been IFB have sat through that one and, and confess like this to everybody and just totally get shamed. And, and this happened to a gay member of our church too. And thinking about and lately i've been thinking about man i've had a hard time telling people that my beliefs may be changing and i'm afraid to tell people like who i about my deconstruction and reconstruction how that really going to go how it's going how they're going to look at me differently judge me love me differently and I, that's about my beliefs yeah but somebody who's gay like their whole existence is just being rejected by people mm. that they love. And I can't imagine how harmful that is. And looking back on this stuff as an adult, I, I'm, I'm realizing why I was so angry for so long uh, without getting into any kind of like doctrinal issues and all that kind of stuff. But there, there, there just wasn't a lot of love in the church setting. And I may have, I, I honestly, I may have been holding them to too high of a standard because my family setting was good. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. No. And again, I relate to that story quite a bit. Like I, like I said, my immediate family, great. And taught me to question, taught me to taught me that no matter what happened, like they would love me, that they were there, they would support me. But a lot of the people that I was under who were not family weren't the same way. And it was very conditional. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that, because obviously the church is supposed to reach out to people. It's supposed to love people, go out to the community and care for people. There's a lot of <laughs> commandments about that. Why do you think in IFB circles, there tends to be a rejection of people who are deemed to be different? And Because that blows me away. I, I get blown away when I see people say, I'm not going to listen to your podcast because you have someone on who is gay or someone on who had sex before marriage or someone on who fill in the blank. And it's even if you don't personally agree, what does that do to the rest of their 
humanity or their story. It doesn't invalidate it. And we don't understand this because we were trying to listen to Jesus Christ. Right. And it's the exact opposite. Like it's the opposite of how he was. And you think of all the people that came to him from the woman and the, the woman who washed his feet with her hair to the thief on the cross, to the centurion whose servant was sick. Like they didn't even have to say the sinner's prayer. They just asked him. They asked him for help. They showed their love. They pretty much said they believed. And then all of a sudden. They recognized who he was. They saw him. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I know like I've been listening quite a bit. Richard Rohr is, uh, I don't know what anybody thinks about his theology and stuff like that, but he said a lot of things that have made a lot of sense to me. And it's really helped me the last couple of weeks, actually, just with just trying to continue on this journey of reconstruction, because after I left, I just didn't feel like it all added up. You know, and I wasn't allowed to question it for sure. And I never felt, and part of that with, with my family, I never felt comfortable questioning it mm-hmm. because I think I was afraid of the response. And I think I sold my family short. My wife was great about it. She's always been great about it. And she's a strong believer. If it wasn't for her support, I don't know where I'd be. And my, my mom, I had an uncomfortable conversation with her the other, the other day. And it started off really bad. I thought it would. And then it turned into, she's showing Christ to me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like she's showing me something different. Uh, then I create this poll on all these, these sites just to see what everybody's experience was like with coming back and letting people know. And uh, the poll is super interesting. There, I had over 300 responses. Mm-hmm. I know it's a small sample size, but this is all across. There was four, four of them were IFB. It was across six kind of recovery sites. And the poll was, how did the people you knew and loved respond to your deconstruction when you left or when you told them they were deconstructing and out of all the results it's 320 some results 154 judged or tried to save them which pushed them further away 42 of them were afraid to tell 73 were excommunicated the majority of those were ifb that were excommunicated and 32 listened and accepted out of 209 or no over 320 results 292 were negative or harmful to push someone further away and 32 were positive and loving and i know there's probably an implicit bias in this poll because i'm in support groups yeah but these support groups exist for a reason i don't think christians know how to talk to people who are struggling with their beliefs and, and, and faith for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really, it, yeah. And I didn't even expect to talk about this, but it's, it's just a really complicated subject because like I've said on the show, I'm still an Orthodox Christian in many ways. And yeah. I don't feel like I've left any Orthodox theology. Really. I feel like I'm, I feel like in many ways the IFB has strayed a lot from a lot of Orthodoxy. One of the things I used to always wrestle with was this, sense of need to constantly it was that old saying listen to hear not to respond kind of thing and my response as a christian was always hey i'm i heard i hear what you're saying but here's the reason you're wrong and here's the verse and here's why and i i do think there's a time to discuss that and to go over like the differences and i think it's okay to discuss if it's a 
if the person's willing to have the conversation, I think it's okay to discuss what you think or what your position is. But you can also love people and understand that we may disagree and that's okay. And I can still care about them. I can still be open if they have questions, but I can also like showing the love of Christ isn't always going and saying, Hey, you said this, you're wrong, fighting them on their face. But sometimes it's just straight up. Hey, I love you. I'm here for you. How can I help you? And if you're, if you are trying to (laughs) tell someone about the gospel, like the odds of that person coming to you when they do want, when they are ready to have that conversation is much higher than if you're blasting them 24 seven and saying, I hope you repent. The people that comment on Facebook and say, you need to repent of fill in the blank. It's that might not be the most effective strategy, but not going to happen. It's it's interesting. It doesn't even have to be blast 24 seven. It can be blast for 10 seconds. Like I said, like I've lived this and the part of it was, I think this was part of my issue and again, I'm still unpacking all this stuff. Like I'm still working through it. And so I'll give you, and you'll circle back a little bit. I live in this environment and I hear what is said about the people who have been struggling or have walked away, even if it was for a second, or have right. you know, fallen or sinned or smoked a cigarette or and, and the, the terminology, like the stuff that's said about them, backslidden, lost, um, everything is like such a negative connotation and nothing about like, how can we get them? Like, how are we going to punish them? Yeah. You know what I mean? And going to an IFB university, punishment's a big deal. Like you don't have to do a lot to get kicked out of school. Now, once you get kicked out of school, there goes that rumor mill. And that person's like scarlet lettered in that culture for a long time. And so I hear all these things that are being said. And I hear all these questions that I'm struggling with. They're your normal Christian questions. I asked a question one time in Bible class and uh, lots of in, the, the guy says, lots of people ask questions like that. And I say to them, can God make a rock so big that he cannot move it? I'm like, that's the stupidest question I've ever heard. And he goes, well, the answer is yes. And then when he does, he'll move it. I was like, come on, dude. Like we can't <laughs> right. even talk anymore. And yeah. I understand what he's saying is you can't limit God and stuff like, but the language that he's using is so, like condescending to somebody's brain. And I knew that I was having a hard time with some of this stuff. And then when I turned 21, I almost, I got put in the hospital and thought I was going to die. I was hospitalized for two weeks and I had a little spot on my brain that they didn't know what it was. They thought it could be cancerous and stuff like that. Ended up, I had, I think I had Lyme disease, Mm. but coming out of that, I realized I've only been scared of hell. I have no idea what I believe. And then it began. Hmm. And it was dark. It was depressing. I worked at a Christian school and I was making $18,000 a year. But to keep my job, I had to give 1800 of that back. Like, it was very difficult. I was married. It was difficult to make ends meet. And so I started playing online poker. And I found that, hey... I found something I can make it. And I was so terrified of everyone that I knew. Finding out, yeah. Yeah, and they did. And they did because I ended up making a living at it for 15 years. And I found out after I quit how upset people were and how Mm. hurt they were. And they're glad that I'm back. And so all this time, like they've they've all been like saying these, you know, people have been saying these things. And I can't say they, 
there's a lot of people who are super accepting of all of it. I just always thought that you know, all the stuff that they were saying was going to be said about me. And, and honestly, like the more I searched, the more I struggled and it, I deconstructed it completely and went full atheist for 10 plus years. Right. And, uh, how, okay, wait, <laughs> so I'm doing the math. You, you don't look this old. How, how old are you? <laughs> I gotta 40. ask. I'm a man. Okay. I'm 40. I had no <laughs> idea you were 40. <laughs> I was like, like wait, so 10 years here, so 10 years there. 10 I'm, years I'm like, old. <laughs> I'm not okay. Young. Kudos oh, yeah. to you, I guess. The Tennessee air is better than this California and uh, Nevada smog, I guess. I don't even but... try, man. You look, <laughs> you look like you're 23 or something That's, like that. Uh, but uh, yeah, I so one, I got to ask about this too. So you said you made a living playing poker. You mean like a straight up like living playing, but like you were, yeah, like, I, that I, was I, your full time. I was working for Christian schools for a little while and then I stopped playing. I stopped doing that. And, and just did that. And I was making way more money playing poker in my free time than I was with any salary. I can I, imagine I, if you're making, if you're good at the level yeah. that you were, obviously you were good and you're making $18,000 a year. Fortunate. Two of the best players in the world were like in my friend group. Yeah. So I was like, dude, I'm desperate. Like I can't make rent. I need help. And he's like, yeah, just come over. We'll start working on it. It took a year or two to figure out the ropes. And yeah. I got in with, I got in with the sharks and they taught me how to do it. And, I guess I had a mind for it and a discipline for it. So I I did it. What was the reason people were upset? I know gambling is a big no-no in IFB, but I've never understood really why. I I mean, why did people give a reason why they were upset about it? I don't know if it was like... Or is it because you left the school maybe? No, no, the school was going down anyways. Mm -hmm. Tennessee Temple ended up closing. Yeah, The school was pretty much going down. Everybody was jumping ship. That wasn't a big deal. It wasn't like a bunch of people that like were upset. It's just that you can hear the whispers. And I had a conversation with two specific people that even at the time, it was like one of them was trying to tell me uh, that it's not a worthy profession and, and that mm. it's wrong and the eyes of God and all this and that. And I'm not here to debate gambling and stuff like that, but I had three 30 inch monitors and eight to 12 tables going on at a time playing over a million hands a year. It wasn't like this was like the stock market. You know what I mean? You're putting yeah. in that kind of volume and just playing a small edge. It's going to be fine. But it was a little more of a disappointment. And, and that wasn't from my parents or anything. It wasn't from anybody within. It wasn't from my wife. It was just from a few people that I really knew cared about and, and loved. Mm. And I think part of it was more on me. I'll be honest. Like, I think part of it was more, I've heard what everybody said about these other people. Yeah. And I know this route that I'm going and I know that I'm, I, now I can hear, I can still hear the language probably right now. As you're saying, well, you're not in church. Uh, you feel guilty. You're, you're backslidden and all that kind of stuff. I, I didn't feel like I was doing anything wrong. I didn't go to church because I had to go Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, chapel three times a week. Like I never wanted to go to church again. And I was already afraid of hell, but I was just as afraid of heaven because all we were told we were going to do is go up there, like people know, we're going to go up there and we're going to sing praises to God and sit around like it's church. And I'm like, that doesn't sound good. This is terrible. What are we going to do? And I'm not making light of it. It's just like in my head, 
like all of it just it, it was a big struggle it was a big struggle and the more I searched for myself the more I went down this rabbit hole of anger and bitterness and I couldn't understand the, the purity culture and sexuality and literal versus metaphor but it's all literal no it's metaphor here but it's literal here like so many the horror stories of you know bible camp and the the, the preacher's scare tactics we had a death rate calculator on our wall during Southwide conference hmm. like it's like, like how many people die per minute yeah. Yeah. yeah and so it just keeps counting and you just get so numb to this stuff after so long uh, and it becomes a running joke and I just found myself writing. I didn't believe in anything until I reached this spiritual depression that was mm. terrifying and empty that yeah. I, I had to find, I had to find God again yeah. and it wasn't in the church. So what do you mean by that? What do you, where would you say you're, when you think about spirituality now, what would you say, where would you say your journey is currently or, or what has your experience been in the past, you know, couple of years? trying to figure this out. You re- when you reach the, a certain point in depression and there's no pills and no, like no good family situation, which mine is still good, there's an emptiness kind of in your soul and your heart. And a lot of mine was bitterness. And even bitterness I couldn't articulate. I just, I, I started seeing a therapist and I didn't know how, I thought I was just stricken with this depression. And I believe C.S. Lewis is right when he talks about the God-shaped hole. I think he's onto something here. There's something in all of us that yearns for a connection to God, no matter what race, religion, whatever, we are dying for it. My therapist told me I should start just journaling and getting it all out. So I started doing that. And those journal entries started turning into short stories. Short stories started turning into like, really a lot like fiction short stories and different stuff and then I started weaving them together and fell in love with the craft and then I realized how much better I was feeling and it was like God gave me this like outlet yeah to just bleed all over the page and, and put stuff out there and just for myself mm-hmm. and then later on I weaved it into a little bit of a parable and it's turned into a novel. So then I just published that last week and I'm I'm hoping staring at it right now on my desk. (laughs) Yeah. It's I appreciate you letting me send you a copy. Really it's a parable for I I wrote it out of anger at first. And it became a lifesaver of if this bitterness wins, you're gonna go insane. Yeah. Like it's gonna eat you up. The bitterness cannot win. And I don't want to spoil the ending or anything, but it begins with the same thing. It's like a kid's burning down a church and hmm. it's, it's R rated. It's, there's a lot of bad language. If you want to know what a rebellious kind of 16 year old kid is thinking in church or thinking in your youth group, read this book. It'll give you a good idea of no. what sexual repression and kind of a lack of education on these things will do to somebody, or at least they're wanting to act out. They can't do it. Uh, it's kind of an explosive kind of story like that. And I channeled a little bit of, it's fiction, but I channeled a little bit of how I feel and you know, some stories that I was around and stuff like that. But honestly, I, I found God 
through writing this book. Like it's like in leaving and leaving my rigid faith structure, I have come to a place where the bitterness and it's still a work in progress, but it's going away and I am choosing to follow Christ, not just for the sake of my own sanity, because for the first time in my life, like I can feel him in my empathy. The fact that I can say everybody was doing their best. Yeah. I truly believe that. I really do believe for the most part, 99% of the IFB preachers were trying to help. They were trying to, I, I just, I don't know if they knew how to talk to the people who had a little bit of rebellious streak or yeah, maybe had that kind of, but it's been a great journey. It's been a great like discovery and, and discovery of my own self. And I think that's part of it. I didn't know what I believed in the first place and had to burn it all down along with the bitter person, that the worst person that I could have become given the most tragic of circumstances. And I truly believe that without God, we're all one tragic circumstance away from just total insanity. Yeah. No, I think it's important. And it is, I think everybody, when they leave, leaves with a sense of bitterness or, and I don't think that's, I don't think that's, I don't want to be careful. I say that because I'm not saying that it's invalid or that you're leaving, but I think generally the people who are hurt and I, I throw myself in that realm too. I think you get to a point where, like you said, you become numb to it. Then you become, it's almost, it's like you become numb and then it's, then you just become a little bit sore to it. And then it starts, it just feels like it eats away at you to a point where, and even me, like I questioned. So like for me, my bitterness was, I was saying, Hey, something's wrong. Something's wrong. And nobody listened. But I think for others, they can find themselves in a spot where they don't feel like they have a right to say something. So they internalize it either way. You're going to end up angry or bitter. And I, I think that, I think in some ways, like I'm thankful for the anger because it gets you to make action, you know, take action and move, but you can't stay there. And I see too many people, like I see people that run or have run accounts similar to what I do or tried to do books or tried to do websites that are similar to what I've tried to do with this show. And I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I'm, I do see sometimes I'll see someone start doing something. I'm just like, man, I, I hope that you can get step away from the bitter side and logically engage with the problem. And because it is, if you're just running on that full steam ahead, <laughs> you're going to burn out really hard, really fast. And like you said, I think you have to get that. What is that cathartic thing you can do yeah. to work through it? And, and creativity is a big deal. Like, oh, yeah. like if you can do something like like that's creative, that can give you that kind of voice, even if it's just with yourself. Just yeah. Like talking about it. This was a my deconstruction slash still in progress reconstruction. <laughs> this is a twenty you know twenty year process, but this book is a six year process. And the first couple drafts of the book, it was like pure, unadulterated rage fueled by nicotine like it was angry and 
there was not much character development. It just sounded yeah, like yeah. I'm venting, you know what I mean? Like a journal. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. sounded exactly like that. Yeah. And then I started to kind of think about the characters and it's a main theme of the book. And I think this is what got me because I'm playing witness to abuse. I'm playing witness to inhumane views toward people that lack love. It doesn't matter whether you agree with them, just love them. You know what yeah. I mean? Be there for them, just like Christ would have been. People, people struggle to do that. And yeah. I, think that's, I think that's human nature. I think we struggle. It's that kind of tribal thing. It's if you don't look like me. And it's, you alluded to that. Like you said for you, like for, it took a lot for you to be able to say, oh, I think that person was trying their best. Even yeah. though you fundamentally disagree, not to use the word fundamentally, but you fundamentally disagree with what they may be saying. Puns. You, you know, you can still, you can still love them. And, yeah. and I do want to circle back really quick. Cause you, you mentioned that like people being well-intentioned and I, I always circle back to the quote, like the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I, I just, I remember when I first heard that and I was like, okay, I don't really get, but now like when I think about the IFB for every egomaniacal sex crazed money grubbing crazy cult leader like jack hiles you have people that graduated from hiles anderson college who truly felt like they were following god's call and they were instructed by people like him and so you've got a lot of pastors who are second third generation who just don't know better and they may truly like their goal may be i want to see everybody that i meet go to heaven which is a good that's a noble, good goal. Like that's, that's, there's nothing wrong with that, but the way that they've been taught to do it came from somebody who was not so well-intentioned. And so you've got this really fragmented kind of world and it does, it takes, it is very hard. I struggle sometimes to see the difference and make delineations there, but there really are. There's guys who really think they're doing the right thing. They just happen to be taught by someone who was, not a good person and and uh, it's so hard not to group identify like like <laughs> yeah these people of like being uh, this the whole group think mindset it's so i think it's a very dangerous thing and it, it's so it's so tough to get it to get that out of my head and i realized too you know what i'm judging them just as hard as they would have ever judged me i am i'm yeah. putting it on them and saying, I think that this is horrible. I don't think it's horrible for everybody. There's certain people that maybe they had lived a life of alcoholism and they needed strict rules to keep themselves out of the ditch. That's got to be valid. You know, they might need standards like that. I'm not saying it doesn't necessarily need to exist. I think that the power structure and all that kind of stuff, I, I think that people need to be aware. They need to learn how to talk to people who are really struggling there needs to be open dialogue of being able to ask questions and and be critical of it because it just doesn't seem like if you can't be like a little bit critical of a religion i feel like that it's no longer about jesus anymore it's more about like you're worshiping this tradition way yeah (laughs) Yeah. way to do it like it sounds like a a bit of a we're making ourselves a little bit more important than we really are and that's a, a theme a little bit in the book. We keep referencing the book. So the book is institutionalized and it's available on Amazon. So I'll drop a link for sure 
in the show notes so people can check that out. But what what would you say is your biggest goal? I know the catharsis, like just mentally working through things and emotionally working through things, but do you have a goal for the readers, people who pick it up and something you'd want them to, to see? There's going to be a certain type of reader that really in, enjoys this book. And it's going to be the reader that was like me, who's very angry and having a hard time getting out of it. And we're going to be able to sit in that anger for a little bit during the book like it's gonna feel good to sit in that anger and eventually you know the book is it's a metaphor it's a parable that's how it turned out eventually that anger is going to destroy us and there's going to be no hope on the other side now there's another character in the book maybe he finds hope maybe he doesn't i don't know i have to believe that there's some kind of hope i have to believe there's something out there because I, you know, if there is hell on earth, it has to be having no hope and going mad as a result of tragic things that happen because suffering is going to happen. So like, how can we avoid this? I like, I like to listen to Jordan Peterson's speeches sometimes. Mm. Uh, it's like, how can we not make it worse? Like we know suffering is going to happen, but how can we not make it worse? And I think being able to burn that bitterness and understand that, hey, your feelings of anger, your feelings of betrayal, or your feelings of your questioning, you weren't able to question and you were mad about that, or you were abused, or whatever it was, like those feelings are, they're, they're fine. Just don't get lost in them. Mm. When, when that pain, when you lived in it that long, that glass gets real dry and there's nothing left. It's tough. No. Yeah, I definitely hope people will check it out. I'm excited to read through it. And it definitely seems like it's, it's going to be a heavy, heavier yeah. read, but I'm ready for it and want to check it out. And I, I hope people listening will check it out as well and give a look to it. So it definitely needs to be a, a trigger warning on the book if you put it by the, the link. It, a lot of it was stories of things that I observed. Yeah, And again, that, most novels, I learned how to write from reading Kurt Vonnegut. So like he writes a fictional account of what he saw in Dresden and with the bombing and some of the horrible stuff like that and then throws it into a story. And this is a lot, it's formatted a little bit like one of those where it's like a fictional account, things that you saw and the way that you felt uh, at the time or the, the, the way you could, and the way you could see people feel. Because I don't remember exactly how I felt 20 years ago if you ask me now i probably would tell you that 20 years ago i was just happy carefree and didn't think about nothing except (laughs) for those times i got scared to death of hell like that was probably what i would have that's probably what i said that's a long time ago yeah yeah no i'm really interested to check it out and and yeah it's I think it's that's a cool cathartic way to deal with it and this this I, I, i forgot about it it comes up here and there but that's when we were getting ready to do this call, I was thinking about Preacher Boys, like Preacher Boys started, like what it is now, yeah. started originally, I was going to write a script for a, a horror film. And so I was writing, I wrote like the first, I, it wasn't even like a chat, like a first few pages, like it was just things that I thought would be interesting in it. But I originally, Preacher Boys was going to be a, a book or a, a film called Preacher Boy, Devil Girl. And it was basically going to be uh, kind of a flip on the possession kind of genre. So the idea was basically intern, small country church, 
finds a girl chained up in the basement. And the whole idea was that the, the pastor would say, we know about that. She's a girl here. She's possessed. We're trying to deal with it in-house. Don't make a big stink about it. So this whole thing is going about his business. There's a situation under the floorboards of the church basically going on. And obviously, of course, the twist is that the pastors and the, the people in the church are possessed, not the girl. And it's all a big push onto her. And so the, the original idea was that was my concept. And someone's probably going to steal that now. They said it. Trademark. Oh, no, but, right. no, but, but yeah, that was my, that was what birthed this. Like a few months before I did this, that was the route I was taking. But the real stories were horrific enough where I ended up just going that route and saying, let's show what's there. Yeah. But but yeah, I, I think it's really important. And I know I think I can say this. I don't know if she'll get mad I'm saying this, but my mom is writing a, a book in the similar s- style right now, dealing with a sexual abuse. And I, I just especially if you are a creative, I know it gets easy when you are upset or when you are depressed. Like I know even during COVID, there's been times of oh, I don't want to do anything right now. But it's I think that's when you need to be putting pen to paper or putting music out or creating videos or whatever it is that you do for that creative outlet. And if you're not creative, whatever you do to that, you find yourself stopping because you feel depressed or sad or upset. I think you really need to take time and think what is going to help me alleviate this feeling because you can't sit in it. I think it's good to sit in it once in a while and to, to think through it and to get upset about it. But you have to get level-headed, get the emotions in check, and address the problem with some manner of calm and <laughs> logic. Yeah. I think logic is the first thing I throw out the window, so that's the first word that comes to mind. But well, yeah, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. The beginning of the book is definitely there's not a whole lot of logic involved. It's just a bunch. Of, it's just a kid acting like an idiot. <laughs> that's uh, that's true to life. Then I know. Uh, I, mean, I, so. I, tried, I tried to keep it as real as possible. There's this. It was. I had to what you're saying on the creativity it's therapy. I, I have a line in the book that references it. And it's, uh, even cover artists can make knockoff masterpieces when a little pain is a string on their Les Paul. Hmm. And it's just one of those things like, and it's just playing. Like when you have some of the best artists, it's like when they're in the darkest places, sometimes they make the best music. Just, right. It helps them and it ends up helping so many people. Yeah. Um, I would encourage people if they did read the book, just if you're okay with watching a rated R movie or reading bad words, or you're brave enough to crawl into a 16 year old mind, your old kid's mind who's living in purity culture, uh, just know that's what you're getting into. Like, yeah. if, if you're not into that or don't want to know, that's, <laughs> don't want to read something like that, that's fine. Yeah. This book is for people who have gone down this road and they're trying to make sense of, of something. And honestly, it's from, I wrote the book I wanted to read. Like I wanted to tell a story that hit me in a way too. So I hope if it helps one person, that'd be great. If not, it was artistic endeavor. Well, if it helps you, yeah. I was going to say, if it helps you, that's a big step. And I, I'm sure that I'll enjoy it because I do, I find really dark heavy stuff very cathartic sometimes and typically dark fiction Uh, if it's straight up i don't it's ironic because of the nature of the stuff i do but i don't like watching a lot of like true crime or things like that because it 
it's real. Like I, the Ted Bundy tape, I'm like, I'm not down for that stuff. I'll sit there and watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and enjoy every second of it because I know it's fictional. I, for me, that is, that's where I, you have to gauge your own personality, but like, that's for me, the, the dark stuff helps me work through the dark stuff and when come out the other side with a smile on my face and everyone thinks you're crazy, but if it works with a little humor, you know? Yeah. A little humor is always good. And it's got that little balance. Then, then it gives you that, it loosens up the emotions too. A laugh here or there along with it. It kind of helps. I definitely go pick up a copy of the book. I'll put a link in the show notes. If you're listening to this, I'll share it on the Facebook page as well. So people can check it out. But I definitely appreciate you coming on. I'm excited to dive in. And once I go through it, we may have to jump on for a part two and uh, chat about it, give some thoughts and work through some of the specific parts. Do a spoiler episode or something. But (laughs) so... Well, awesome. JT, thanks for coming on. Is there anything else you want to say before you before we hop off here? Yeah, I want to hear your question. What's the question you always end with? Oh, do you think... <laughs> thank you. Uh, do you think that there is hope for reform of the independent Baptist movement? I do not think there's hope for reform. And this is not a... I think there's hope for it being what it is to help people but that would be nothing more than a social club. You know what I'm saying? Like everybody, it's an echo chamber that everybody agrees with each other and we all this and that. So that's fine. But I don't know. I can't say I don't think that there's hope. I, I hope that there's hope, but there's never going to be hope until it stops becoming about how wrong people are and how much more morally superior we are than them. And that's what drove somebody like me away because you have this question of that the depravity of man combined with the elect or predestination combined with eternal grace, once saved, always saved kind of thing. And it just it gives people, a lot of people a pass to be morally superior. And it's, it, I don't know if they can stop. We can stop as I am former, we can stop being like that enough to not push people away. No. Uh, so I, as a mecha- mechanism for understanding God and worship and showing Christ's love, I don't think mm. it is. As yeah. a de- detox rehab facility for someone who really needs it, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Like the rigidity of it. Yeah. No, that's super interesting. I could rabbit trail off of this for a while, but that is, it is such a interesting and again, this circles back to like theology. Like when I look at the gospel message in scripture, like what I see, I don't see how you can read it and feel morally superior. I I, I see, and that goes back to how I feel like how people deal with unconverted people is, the Bible even says it lists out all these different sins and, and so are some of you. And it's like this, for me, I always look at it, I'm like, I'm literally no better than anyone else. And any merit that I have or any spiritual grace that I'm receiving is exactly that. Like it's grace. I didn't receive, I didn't earn my spot at this position or I didn't buy a suit that got me here or I didn't, I did nothing to merit God's favor. And theologically, even if like we could go on a huge rabbit trail about all the different ins and outs of theology, the Bible is all about God choosing his people 
it's not, it's never about people choosing to be the moral majority in America or the people choosing to be the right wing or the left wing or the centrist or whatever position we tend to associate with Christianity. It was God showing unmerited grace to anybody that he felt he wanted to give it to, not based on anything that they did. And do we understand that? Do I, do we, I don't fully understand all the meanings of that or interpret, but I know that there's nothing in me that merits me going to someone who doesn't believe like me and being a jerk. (laughs) I'm I'm dying to believe what you just said. I I, like, I have to, that's, and that's when you lose hope, you get to that point. I I need that Christ. Yeah. But he's so rarely preached. (laughs) Yeah. If you looked at how, if you looked at the amount of sermons, if there was a starting five people in the Bible who were preached on Christ coming off the bench for sure. Like a lot of times it's not, it's tough. It's tough to watch the us first them and victim mentality and the, the moral superiority. And it, it, I think it's just, it's humanity's fundamental. It's one of our fundamental problems. And I'm doing the same exact thing. That's what's so frustrating to me is I'm sitting here and I'm talking about how all oh, they're, they're wrong for doing this. They're wrong for doing that. Well, I'm wrong like all the time. You know, what if I'm wrong? And that's, it's hard. Our biggest problem is like, we need this superiority and we have a hard time making ourselves, not making ourselves more important than we really are. Yeah. It's it's frustrating. And if we could just divorce, if if the IFB could divorce the ego. Yeah. I think it, I think that it could be great for so many people and it could get back to love and acceptance and not have the exclusive Christ. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's the tough one. Right. Yeah. You don't have the patent on the religious experience or you don't have this. Yeah. And it is, it's very hard. And I catch myself doing it. They only use a piano. So they're stuck in the, in this time period or they wear this or they go this many times a week. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter. My biggest concerns are, when the ego comes into play and when they start hurting, when a church starts hurting others or when a way that a church, that's why the show isn't called exposing IFB Pat. Like my thing is the movement. It's what does the movement teach that hurts others? And you have to make that distinction. Are there good people in the movement? A hundred percent. Are they still part of a vehicle that's running over people who need help? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that needs to be addressed. But it, it doesn't come from a place, and I, I know people don't believe me, but it doesn't come from a place of me thinking that I'm way smarter than every single IFB pastor, and I've read more, and I've done that. I'm not saying that. For me, I just don't want to see people hurt, and I see an organization that's been structured in a way that makes that happen pretty yeah. frequently. <laughs> so, so I said, uh, uh, Aaron Sorkin uh, wrote that newsroom show and I think it was the opening scene of that whole show it's like the first step to solving a problem is recognizing that there is one yeah that's that's what you that's what you're doing right here and that's what I'll I'll get you back any day on that and I remember yeah. sitting on that one podcast with uh, or that zoom meeting with Rager and I was about to go crazy when he started talking <laughs> to you like buddy you better that's everything I can do to get my mic muted right. uh, I don't think you understand like we're trying to help like yeah talk about an issue here and one of the issues that's heavy on my heart is just the hate speech like the hate speech toward people who think different and and the way that they make people feel uh yeah. and like those people don't come back 
Yeah. Like I almost didn't come back. I only came back for myself and my own sanity. And it wasn't, and honestly, like seeing Christ's love in my family and a certain couple of friends and no judgment and acceptance of, of who I am, that played a role too. Let me go through it the way I had to go through it. That played a big role too. But if they say, oh no, you're just a backslidden sinner. Like, I know I am. Like, yeah, right. what are you, I'm right. searching, man. I'm really searching. I'm trying to figure this whole thing out. I'm struggling. I need some help. Yeah. I could go on this path and yeah. <laughs> keep That's pushing, right but I, man, I, I, yeah, I really appreciate you talking. I think this was a really good conversation and I know we got to go quite a few places with it. I'd love to, like I said, I'd love to do another part of this, but I do. I really hope that people will check out the book. I hope people will listen to this episode a couple times and, and wherever you're at, don't be afraid to re- afraid to reach out. I'm definitely would love to talk with you and, and chat. And I try to be intentional about not having an agenda when yeah. someone reaches out, but, but yeah, thanks so much for coming on and for sharing. And I look forward to keeping up with you and, and seeing how everything goes in the next, next couple of weeks, months and how everything goes with the book and, everything like that so yeah, i appreciate you having me on eric yeah, for sure love to stay in touch you know it's always nice to know that you're not alone in stuff like this that's something that i found out through you know podcasts like what you got and some yeah. of these support groups i mean for so long i was i felt like i was yeah uh, outside of my immediate family so it's refreshing for right. sure and you're doing a lot of good exposing some of these people that it needs to come out and people need to be protected kids need to be yeah. protected yeah. And I, I guess I'll just close with this is if there's, if you're listening to this and you do feel alone, like there are literally thousands of people listening to the show connected through social media that the minute they know that someone exists that needs help, I've seen them go and back them and try to do what they can to help. So you're not alone. There are people, there's at least, there's at least two here. And I know there's plenty more uh, where that came from. So definitely don't be afraid to, to reach out for fear of being left in the dust. It's not going to happen. Yeah, you can reach out to me on Twitter for sure. I'd love to try to talk to anybody that's going through stuff like this. Absolutely. It can be a long road when you're by yourself. Awesome. We're going to go ahead and wrap it up there, but I appreciate all of you uh, for listening and uh, definitely be sure to join the Preacher Boys discussion group on Facebook if you haven't already and uh, connect with myself, uh, with JT on Twitter, um, Instagram, Facebook, wherever you want to connect. And we'll talk to you real soon. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes. And don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. 
Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.